The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Sherry Renee Scott. Sherry, hi. Hi. Let me just <laughs> run through a few of your credits. You started your Broadway debut was 15 years ago in The Who's Tommy. Since then, you've been in a number of shows, including <sighs> Aida, The Last Five Years, Debbie Does Dallas, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and currently The Little Mermaid on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And you have one of the juiciest parts on Broadway, that of Ursula the Octopus. That's true. <laughs> Juicy is a good word yeah. for Ursula. Well, she's like a like a... To use the word interesting is an understatement. She's good. She's true to herself in the sense that she believes that she's a wonderful person, but she may be not as wonderful as she thinks she is. Well, I mean, that's up for opinion, but I I think she's interesting in that most... um, What, you you know, quote-unquote bad people or villains or villainesses are... um, there, there's some sort of self-loathing involved, and she's the opposite. She's so loving and loves herself, and thinks she's so beautiful and sexy, and um, and she's just insatiable. I have a, um, I did this kind of montage of influences for her. I did Ursula's Idols, like when, this, when you were creating, creating the role, the role mm-hmm. and kind of um, actually auditioning for the role, which was like a course of three months. Mm-hmm. And I started to be just looking at who would Ursula admire if she could, uh, or, you know, like, or who does she have crush on? You know, who would she like to make out with? You know, and, um, you know, Jerry Falwell was in there. She really <laughs> admires him and Leona Helmsley. And, and, um, uh, and then when she looks at herself I think she sees herself as like some form of Gloria Swanson Shirley Bassey she's kind of an old time silent film star which is interesting because she ends up taking someone's voice but it's it's a really fun um, experience for me uh, it's not it's uh, it's different than anything I've ever done and um, and I love the new song I've been given by Alan Menken and Glenn Slater and uh, I love 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 um, the actors I get to play with every night. Sierra Bogus, who plays Ariel, is just, oh, she's just so heavenly and in the ways that I like, meaning that she's very body and foul-mouthed <laughs> in real life. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but she's just such a great broad at such a young age. It's it's um it's kind of it's it's mind blowing how self possessed she is in such a cool way. Um, I really dig her a lot. Well, Ariel, of course, is the sweet little niece of of your character, yes, Ursula. Yes. So Aunt Ursula is not the best aunt in the world. The little Ariel, is she? Well, you know, she. The one thing I will say about their relationship is that Ursula is the first person to see Ariel's power and to appreciate it, and. I think what was so, I mean, even though you may say it's a children's show or um, uh, it's it's not, when we have a writer like Doug Wright involved and a director like Francesca Zambello, all of the adults that come, um, everyone that I've spoken to um, is so impressed with how we've adapted the story for the stage. Um, it was really important to me when I became attached to the project that uh, or bef- before then, when I was asking about how they were going to treat, especially the ending, when um, Ariel, it didn't want it to seem like there's this girl in a bikini who's lost her voice. Well, why wouldn't you fall in love with her? I mean, what you know, and she gets to be- get married at the end. What's the problem? You know, it's. I think we needed to show that Ariel's power and her own strength, and and the strength that it took to find her power, and not be. And not be a product of her environment. And I understand that coming from where I've come from. And I understand a dream of being a powerful woman and still being a woman. And um, that was very important to me that Ariel see her power and say, I can be powerful and not and not be like my auntie. You know, I can be powerful and and still be and not be like my father. You know, I, I can I can be a powerful woman and stand on my own two feet and make my own decisions. And that's the ending that, that Doug Wright wrote. And that's what we play for adults and, um, 
youngsters, you know, eight times a week, and it's an excellent message to be sending out to the universe. You mentioned the development of the show and what it was going to be. How much of that process were you party to? Was there a finished script when you came in, or like so many musicals, was it evolving over the course of both your out-of-town tryout and any workshops and, and of course, here in New York? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, just for anyone who's done theater, I mean, I think people that have done diverse, um, uh, you know, forms of... of, um, just art, you know, whether it's <laughs> attempting art on television or film, straight plays, um, which we call plays without music or musicals. <laughs> um, anyone will say that, that a musical is the most collaborative um, endeavor. It's the longest um it takes the longest time, the longest commitment, um, because there are so many elements involved. So just as in any musical I've ever done that's a new musical, which I've mostly only done new musicals, really, which is um, my where my heart is, you always start with a script and music, and it always changes to almost be unrecognizable. For instance, in when I auditioned for Ursula, I sang... I had three numbers... Um, besides, I had two numbers besides Poor Unfortunate, which of course was never going to be cut, and I was certain of that. <laughs> um, two new numbers that they wrote, um, Glenn and uh, Glenn Slater and Ella Mencken, neither of which are in the show anymore. Because when I sang them and worked on them, in the process of them, and before I got the part, it was like the ballsiest thing I ever did. I said, if I were to do this part, I don't think either of these numbers are right. And I just want you to know that going in that I I think that it's we're close getting closer but this is not where she's coming from. I think in learning them and practicing them and singing them for you guys I feel that it's not what we're going to want eventually and we should start thinking in a new direction and and I fortunately had a director that felt that after I voiced my opinion was also relieved that I voiced my opinion and felt the same way and from then on being inside the piece I was able to we were able to talk about where where was this character and and uh and where was she beginning and what did she want hence I you know we literally have an I want song called I want the good times back you mm-hmm. mentioned the director Francesca uh, Zambello mm-hmm. uh, she is not known as a theater director but she's extremely well known as an opera director mm-hmm. what was it like for you as an actor working with an opera director what what did she bring to it that may have been different than a, a theatrical director might bring well opera directors I, I know now um uh, are not afraid of um, grandness, <laughs> and certainly Francesca, who is, is um, look, I've never worked with a director who's done thirty new shows, operas, Fra- operas, but mm-hmm. regardless, but new productions, new productions, right. not revivals, thirty new operas. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never worked with a theater director that has any has done anything like that, and. Um, Especially when mounting the how grand they have to be, so I, we were. I felt very assured that we were. This woman knew what she was doing and was not intimidated by any technical aspect or any um, any physical aspect of the production, and that allowed us to really delve in in rehearsal, in rehearsal and on stage to. Uh, connecting a lot of the acting moments it was it's a lot of speaking in this show with all the numbers I mean there's a big story to be told and it's operatic in scale but it really comes down to a family story um royal families um and it's like it's you know kind of any kind of typical Shakespearean story where these royal families and this princess wants to leave and go it's it's um it's and we had Doug Wright to work on it and it was very exciting so I wasn't expecting that honestly I was expecting for it to be um, much about every physical aspect of the show and for us to kind of fend for ourselves um, as actors but it was really uh, which happens in musicals a lot and um, and but they were she's a it's also good to have a woman director for this piece and Disney had a lot of foresight um, usually does in that aspect that um a show about two powerful women that they wanted a powerful woman as a director. And um, I don't think 
I haven't really worked with many women in um, power positions or authority positions. I have always been fearful of authority. I've, you know, always kind of separated myself, kind of an us and them mentality, um, just out of lack of experience, you know, where I come from and growing up, being so distanced from this world, I didn't know much. So, um, and slowly through being a producer in Shikaboom and and being involved in producing through my husband, Kurt Deutsch, and you know, getting to know producers um, and and now getting to know directors, I it's less an us and them mentality and it's much more of you see how much heart and soul these people put and I've only worked with men and for me to have a woman director was so influential um, uh, for me and, and uh, inf- is I think influenced my life um, for many years to come. I learned so much. As you talk about the character and these issues, I have to ask, is this the most powerful woman you've ever played? Well, <laughs> powerful. That's so subjective. I mean, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, I I don't think people would write about these people unless they were powerful. You know, I think, you know, certainly Debbie Does Dallas was... Debbie was the most powerless person I've ever played, um, obviously. And there's interesting in the spectrum that they're so similar in so many ways. Um, you know, the kings and the peasants and the, the powerful and the powerless and the rich and the poor. You know, when you get down into it, the, the extremes of our culture sometimes have more similarities um, than differences. But I, I, I would guess so. If, if power means not giving, you know, uh, flying, you know what, then, then she is powerful in that way. Um, she's, she's the most like that. Um, she has, uh, she doesn't have to follow any rules and there's a certain power in that. Um, Well, actually she kind of makes up her own rules. She makes up her own rules and she's definitely a self-made person, not anyone you would like to emulate, (laughs) but there, there's definitely a freedom in that. And where there's, to me, there, I feel powerful when free, you know, that's, if I, I'm not interested in power per se, I'm, but I'm interested in freedom. And she's definitely a, um, a free person, in the, a free being, let's say, in that way. Um, and I think maybe that's why she's so iconic to so many. She was, you know, from the film and, and, uh, and now in, in this staging of it. Um, people are drawn to her, even kids, you know, like I, they must sense that kind of you well, know well she's alcohol. also also powerful both for your performance but also the, just the physical size of the costume you wear with all the the arms and tentacles right. the octopus tentacles coming out of it it's got to be one of the largest costumes ever on broadway i would think you think i hope i mean may, maybe maybe <laughs> lion king giraffes are bigger but uh, this no. has got to be one of the biggest self-worn so. uh, costumes <laughs> yeah definitely not the end of the first act for it I, I mean I, I they may be as tall as a giraffe but i'm as big as an elephant <laughs> in the end there but um yeah, the costume is kind of amazing. It's, um, I can't say her last name. Um, so Francesca would kill me. It, Francesca, you know, the director also speaks fluent Russian and, you know, six languages. And so we had a, a, a team of Russian, uh, m- they've done operas mostly to um, designers and um, uh, just incredible artists that have made this costume do thing. I, I can, it's wearable. I can sing in it. I can dance around and it's just the most it's bigger than the house i grew up in in kansas <laughs> let me tell you that much <laughs> tell us how you got from kansas to new york um i'm honestly still trying to figure that out uh <laughs> i um i don't really know i know um i mean i could via plane you got off the greyhound bus had you done much theater back home or was it really um, there's to not New York much theater started? there wasn't much theater um and well i wasn't exposed um my parents were not interested in theater um or any sort of you know well, movies you, or anything or um, anything like that your, your father was a minister i understand your mother was a nurse no my dad was a chiropractor i don't know where really? that got started I, okay. it's very interesting that people think he's a minister i know that um 
I don't know where that information came out, but um, uh, yeah, my dad was a chiropractor and my mom was a nurse and was his nurse and assistant. And uh, um, but he was very much like a pastor, and he was his <laughs> his and his and his grandfather was a was a minister, and religion was a big part of our life. My mom was um. My mom left the church to marry my dad. Well, she didn't leave the church. She was forced. Uh, she's Mennonite, Amish Mennonite. So um, my relatives, half of my family is that, and then half of my family is, uh, um, you know, Catholic. So uh, there was a search for religion, and that must have been where any sort of theatricality kind of came in. I just, I mean, I'm not, I, I think my parents, my, my father's no longer on this earth, um, but my mom would say that it was seven years old and I just said I, I want to um, be an actor and I want to move to New York and this I'm talking to parents who have never been on airplanes or seen a play or um, you know my mom had never seen the ocean you know people that very landlocked in Kansas and um, there was a um, I think what saved my life was actually a community center um, where it was near where my parents worked and, and I needed a babysitter and I guess I would always sing or something around the house or um, uh, uh, do, you know, do th funny things or something. And so there was this community center that was cheaper than a babysitter. And because of um, Minigers, which is a mental health facility that was there, it was a, like a town inside a town. And it was huge 40-acre mental health facility. It was famous. And um, all of these former actors became... Um, psychologists and psychiatrists and would train there and so they decided to get together and run this in the summer to start a children's theater thing at this community center and it was incredibly fortuitous and I started there at seven and I'd never seen a play never heard a cast album but we started writing our own shows about our lives and then they would teach us these songs um didn't have a record player or anything like that so I would learn it from someone singing it on a piano or um and that's uh that's how it started which is interesting now that writing has always been something I've wanted to do and uh um and it's now coming back you know in my life but so I said I want to move to New York and be an actor when I was seven I, I never um I don't I never thought of you know, I, I studied acting and never thought of doing musicals. I thought of rock and roll as one form of music and then theater. And um, I didn't see... I saw one way of making money was singing and another way of making money was, was acting. Um, and I didn't really understand the whole musical theater thing. Um, it, it didn't, I didn't really understand it until I got my first job, which was Tommy, which was ironic because it was the blending of these two worlds that I, these disparate things that I loved. Um, and, uh, and it came together kind of in one thing. And, and, uh, after probably as an actor, um, having made fun of musical doing musicals after doing one and meeting the people and, and the, and the life that it was. And I loved it. I, I, I began to realize at 16 and 17, uh, I had some experiences in the music industry and realized that, I did not have the um, nervous system for um, a role, a, a, a life in um, in the music industry, in rock and roll, or um, so I knew that I was having problems. I I, I didn't like the lifestyle. I was a very clean person, but I love rock and roll music, and I loved singing rock and roll, and um, but I loved acting. So slowly, things started moving me more towards acting just as a, as a way of like not killing myself <laughs> you can't do eight shows a week and um it was was tommy your first theater role then yeah my tommy was my first um yeah it was my first brought my first i think i'd done you know who gave me my equity card was um jerry jim and galt the guys who wrote hair uh -huh. and um i'd gone to acting school and uh they had seen a production of Bomb and Gilead, I think, that I had done. And um, I'd known somehow one of their friends or something. And they said they were doing the 25th anniversary of Hair at the United Nations with the original cast and the original movie cast. And um, they said, we're going to put you in that as a new talent. And you sing songs with Tuli Dumakade and Martha Plimpton, I think I sang songs with. And and um, and then all the original cast came back. And, and then they said, and then subsequently I was... I was then committed to doing um, the 20th anniversary of Hair in Woodstock. So that's where I got my equity card. And um, 
so that was kind of the actually the beginning i guess of the rock and roll and <laughs> and um and uh and mu- and musicals coming together um i i've always wanted to to come to new york to learn at a very young age I knew I, I needed to learn, and I wanted to learn. And it's interesting, I never had any interest in going to Los Angeles um, because my only information was from two channels on our television, you know. And um, so I, I really basically lived um, my entire childhood and my teenage years um, readying myself and waiting um, to come to New York City and, and, uh, and learn. So you came to New York and ended up going to the Neighborhood Playhouse? Right. Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater saved not my life. A, not a conservatory of musical comedy, to no, say the least. No, not a musical But you just theater. said it saved your life. Now, that's a phrase you've already used more than once. But what, what about that saved your life? I think when, you know, it's no one's fault, you know, my, no, where I grew up, it was, and it, I was just not, I was a person now that I know that I was, I was a person who needed some culture and some stimulation, and I didn't have access to a lot of it. And that can be very frustrating for a young person who's not able to, who thinks there's something wrong with them, you know, and for wanting these things or not being practical, not being in reality, you know what I mean? Uh, Not you know, not doing the things that other people do, not being interested in things that other people are interested in. Um, when you come or you're accepted, first of all, into a school, uh, I researched and I looked at where everyone I admired had studied. Where do the people that I admire, you know, um, study? And, you know, I saved up money to come to New York. And obviously my parents were just, you know, just in shock. They still, they thought it was a joke, you know, up until when I got on the plane and and said I'm using this money to buy a plane ticket and I'm going to audition for schools and I mean seriously now they'll but I'm sure they thought I was going to be a stripper or a prostitute because it was synonymous but I mean where I grew up it was you know very actress and or actor and anyway so when you find a, a school like the neighborhood playhouse that um is in the city and is also not glamorous in any way and is not um there's not that high pressure of appearances or um money or um some sort of prestige you know kind of a high pressure school um it's uh it was a safe haven and it also teaches a technique i was a very um, it teaches it's not an emotional recall type of technique it's very much about Skill and craftsmanship, and we're talking about the Meisner technique. The Meisner technique, yeah, and um, and I think you know I was in a lot. I mean, a lot of people study it for three months at a time, and I don't think they quite. You know, it's it's a it's a very beautiful thing. It's kind um, and uh, it certainly has helped me with eight shows a week. You know, and the repetition of doing um, performances. So I think uh, if anybody's out there, any kids out there that feel I mean like I did just living on dreams you know um, I would you just you have to prepare prepare yourself there are practical aspects you have to um, you have to work on you have to save your money you have to um, get prepared and educate yourself and be the person you you dream don't wait for somebody to make it happen or help help yourself and be be the be the best person that you can be and be the person that you dream you could be and start becoming that person and i i took it upon myself to do that i i just say i don't want to talk and then i then i get it and i can't <laughs> stop talking the distance from kansas to new york was like going, coming from the moon for me my the distance i traveled was very far. Um, the distances other people travel are not that far. Um, and I knew that, that I, that I needed help. I knew I needed training and, and I knew that I needed to help myself. And it was a long, it was a long distance. And, and, and I look back and I don't, I don't know. I don't really know how it happened. 
Well, The Who's Tommy was 1993, your first three Broadway credits, that in 1993, then a revival of Grease in 1995, and then you went into Rent uh, after that. All three of those were, I guess you could use the word rock or rock-oriented shows. Not that Grease is the same as Rent nor no, the same not. as Who's Tommy, but they're, they're that kind of music that's called... I mean, the music uh-huh. in Grease was called rock and roll back in the 50s. Yes. And, no, yeah. and that meant and, a lot to me when yeah. I got I was acting with Rosie O'Donnell, you mm-hmm. know, who I really admired, and, and it was her first Broadway show, and I took over from Megan Mullally, and um, I was, you know, making more money than... I don't know that I'm making more money a month than like the house I grew up in cost, you know, so which my mother is selling. I just found out today. So that's why I'm like, I'm probably talking about it so much. But what else not in there is I did Randy Newman's Faust. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, I was just right, talking about Broadway. You, oh, did, Broadway, you did Randy right. Newman at, at La Jolla and also at the Goodman in Chicago. Right. So yes. there you go. There's another Which one. Which is one of my favorite shows, and w- I love Randy. Were you Randy. intentionally looking for this type of show, or were you being typecast? I mean, why did you end up being in this type of show one after the other? before getting into, say, Aida? I think, now that I look back on it, I was probably a lot cooler than I thought I was. (laughs) 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 Um, I must have been, um, because those are, like, kind of the coolest shows that were around. Um, um, That's my favorite way of singing. My my first experience with kind of legit musical theater singing has been recent. And, like I was saying, the, the blending of... And my other love of rock and roll and and um, singing, they kind of would come in there. Um, and I guess I was lucky. You know, I, I think that, I mean, I was lucky to be in those shows with those people. And um, that's a lot of it. You mentioned how much you loved the Randy Newman show, Faust. And, of course, mm-hmm. it's a show that got seen in a couple of cities but didn't make it to New York. Mm-hmm. What is it that you loved so much about it? Tell us just a little about that show. I love Randy's sense of humor. I I I love that so much. It's very. I mean, David Yazbek has it, um, and in our community, and you know, Randy can do it and make fun of things, and and David can, in spite of himself, David has a lot of heart, <laughs> and and um, and it comes out in his music, and I think it does in Randy's too. But this show, Faust, was more. Um, it was based on, you know, Gertz's Faust, but it was also kind of, to me, a loving way of making fun of musicals. But a lot of people didn't see it in that way. A lot of people just saw the making fun of it. And I, I think Randy was like the, the most spiritual atheist I've ever met. He was the most sweetest. Um, and I also love him because he, you know, helped my me meet my husband and he sang at our wedding and, and um, he's sentimental, and you know, but... It was kind of, it's to me the the best musical. The best musical would be a play with music, and and I think Randy was trying to do that, and um, and it would also be a kind of music that is that is a kind of music that I love to sing, which is that you know kind of rock, jazz, you know, or easy rock kind of accessible kind of music to a broad audience. Um, I love, I love, I loved that. I think it didn't come in because the producers were um, first-time producers, and it was Lorne Michaels, and and uh, I think it was Warner Brothers. And, I mean, there were scalping tickets in Chicago. It was a huge success, the old Goodman. And and it was just the kind of... The, the, it was the kind of things that the fans were ready for it, and, 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 the, and the suits weren't, <laughs> you know, and were afraid. And that's like theater anyway, like... I kind of, as I get older, love things like that, that it's so ephemeral. Everything's recorded now. You know, everything is, I mean, visually recorded. You know, there's, everybody can do that. And it's like, it doesn't matter unless it's been recorded or it's like you don't exist unless you've been on film. And what's so amazing is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have had the most incredible events of their life that they can only talk about and discuss and remember and share with other people and that's why I love theater it's 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 something that it you can't it's re- YouTube it you can't YouTube it and when you can it it's it's so wrong that people are watching these performances and our performances you know uh, on some hideous matinee where we were marking that somebody was like you know filming from underneath their you know filthy raincoat it's like uh, it's 
it it doesn't capture the feeling that you get when you when you're in a congregation with like-minded people being quiet and watching these people give themselves to you so that you can become more connected with humanity in some way you know and the 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 fact of how fleeting it is and and the storytelling aspect of it is I saw this show and this and then and this and, and then I would um it's so amazing in our time that we can still have that. And I know it's going to, it's going to be appreciated more and more as we become more, everything's becomes more technical and cold and, and, uh, those kind of real moments will be more appreciated. Well, moving from the 1990s into the, uh, 21st century with Aida, which opened on Broadway in 2000. I guess the story really started a couple of years earlier down in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater right. when you did Elaborate Lives, which then ultimately you became back on Broadway through that. Right, right. Um, gosh, that's right. Well, well t- tell us how you got into Elaborate Lives to begin with in Atlanta and then how that transitioned <sighs> I to think New I York. just, oh, I think I know what it was. I, I had met Kurt, my husband, during Fast. Kurt Deutsch. Kurt Deutsch, and we were living in L.A., and and I did a TV series. Uh, got on in two weeks. I, I was there, like, less than a week or something, and I got on a TV series, that ridiculous th- story, and I made more money in, like, two weeks than I'd made in, like, six months on Broadway <laughs> <laughs> doing, um, you know, my first few shows. And, and um, so I was like, this is it. I'll never go back. This is it. That I can make money, and then I can go and do off-Broadway shows, um, which was a dream. And uh, then Kurt wanted to go back into a play. Kurt was an actor at the time. And uh, so he had to go audition for something, and, and I said, well, if you have to be there, I might as well try to get something. And... and um, I think I may have been in rent at the time. Uh or no, that was that was after. I um I auditioned for a workshop. That was it. And I didn't even know Elton John was involved actually. I just I auditioned for this workshop and found out there that it was Elton John music. I was like, Oh great and then uh, then I uh I did all of the workshops and uh in between there I did rent, uh took over for Dina and um then we went down to Atlanta. It was still called Elaborate Lives. <laughs> Which is one of the names of the songs. Um, we kept wanting them to call it Aida, but there was, you know, from the tippy 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 top of the Disney Corporation, um, that was nixed. Could um, sound like an opera. Exactly. God forbid. Um, and um, after we did Elaborate Lives, it immediately became Aida. <laughs> was the title. Well, the show was indeed pretty elaborate down in Atlanta. All of us here heard stories about the set not working and the Great uh-huh. Pyramid and all of that. But the show was pretty radically reworked, as as I understand it, between mm-hmm. Atlanta and New York. Mm-hmm. What's it like to be in a show where where there's that so many changes, so many profound changes going on? Fortunately, it was we had the producers were Disney, and so. <sighs> We were kind of kept well informed throughout the process, and they always had plans, you know. So it was always, this is, you're sliding on hydraulic fluid, you're trapped inside a pyramid, and, you know, but we have plan, you know, but we're going to, we're going, don't worry, that we're going to, we have ideas. Um, and we were always assured that and reassured that um, the show would go on, you know, that this was an out-of-town tryout, and if this production didn't work, that, they were going to try something else. And indeed they did. Director changed, book mm-hmm. writer changed. Yep. Everybody, it's, um, yeah, it started, it took place in Pasadena after that instead of Egypt. No, it was, um, <laughs> it, it, yeah, everything changed. It was, uh, I try, I'm not interested in any of that. Um, I'm not interested in, um, I don't, uh, I don't read online stuff. I but don't. As a performer, you have a show changing around you that you're still in, which right. is quite something. Yeah, but when you're kept, when people are being honest with you and they're, and they're treating you as a creative individual and not just me, but my other cast members in the same way, and um, they're discussing things with you openly, then you just, you keep moving forward. You know, it's, it's when people are being duplicitous or not informing you or, or, they're being cruel to other people. I can't abide that. You know, um, it's I'm not one of if they're treating me fine and, and my castmates horribly, it's not OK. Um, but they really tried to keep us informed throughout everything. And they told us people were going to go. And um, but they told us they wanted to keep going. And I have to say, you know, 
Wayne Salento was put on there and and helped um, with our staging and immeasurably, but Bob Crowley came on as a new designer and completely re-envisioned the piece and gave it such a sophistication. And um, it was such a beautiful, beautiful production that obviously um, the music is lives on because I mean I cannot every single time I go out I mean it's so many people love that cast album and and love um love that loved that show and um and the the physical the physical production changed and um and David Henry Wong changed the book and and really helped us really helped us a lot and I was really proud of that too because it was you know, I don't know if since the Great White Hope, you're just talking about James Earl Jones, and one of my idols is Jane Alexander, and 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 um, I mean, I don't know. Everyone underplays the um, the interracial love story of the show, but it was it at uh, that time, and and for a musical, especially that was a popular musical that was going to appeal to younger people because of Elton. I mean, it was very risky for Disney to do something like that, and I don't think anyone has has you know been more between Lion King and Aida and and our production now of Little Mermaid um, has been you know more open and and more ready to bring Broadway into this century in terms of all of the diversity of talent and people that we have um, in this community. Well you talked a moment ago about uh briefly doing some television work in L.A. so you have money so you can do off-Broadway. Right. You move from a big, huge Broadway show, Aida. Your next show was a two-person show, you and Norbert Leo Butts in the last five years, off-Broadway. And it was an interesting story of a marriage over a five-year period told from the perspective of the man and the woman, where one told it from the present to the to the past, the other from the past to the future. And I guess your character, the woman, started in the present and went back over the five years. Mm-hmm. Yes, that um, the character I played started at the end of the relationship and went back in time through the beginning. And um, the other character, the male character, started in the beginning of the relationship, the happy, obviously, part of it, and went through to the end, to With the, the divorce. Cl- With crossing the, cross, the, just, the Yeah, it's marriage. like an X. Yeah, just think of it as like an X. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, the, the characters converged in the middle um, at their wedding and it's Jason Robert Brown's show and it was obviously um, not you know saying anything it was based on his experiences and Daisy Prince directed and uh, it was it's those thing that you'd go and do TV deals for that I've you know did so that I could make money and uh, um, and come back and do something that I loved it was the first thing I ever the first thing I ever um, heard, I heard some music from it, I think in August of 2001, honestly, right before September 11th. And I said, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to get this. I don't know, but I know that no one can do it better. I, I, I'm not, I, it's a horrible thing because for someone that is so, um, doesn't uh, if, have a lot of uh, self-confidence. Um, but I felt so strongly that I could it's never happened to me where I said, "Oh, I, I can bring something to that that no one else can bring." I um, this is um, this is something that that I, I I feel I can serve this the piece like no one else could serve the piece. What, what did you feel that way? I don't know. I just loved it. <laughs> I just <laughs> okay. loved it, and I felt by loving it so much that I would rise to the occasion. It was beyond my capabilities at the time. You know, when I auditioned for it, it was. I mean, I'm not a singer. It's I'm not. It's crazy to I've been making faces, but there are people that are born singers, and they've been in your room, and you've talked to them, and they come out of the womb, and they have this thing that there are singers. I I was not born a singer. I was my draw was acting. My 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 heart was from acting, and any singing that I do came out of oh my God, I can, people think I can sing. And it became something that was then cultivated through school on top of my acting because of a, they convinced me that I would make more money and they were right. (laughs) (laughs) They were right. Um, But um, it's, it's, I've, I've had to learn very technically things that I didn't know 
um, that come naturally to a lot of people. And for the last five years, I had to work very hard with a voice teacher, Joan Later, to really bring out... Um, and, oh, this musical director, Tom, who's in Chicago now, um, um, helped me a lot. And I, I knew that I knew I could rise to the occasion. I just needed help and, and guidance. And and um, what I didn't know was that what I could also bring to the show was a cast album that um, Kurt and I had started a record label um, for Broadway cast recordings, what was originally for Broadway artists. And then it Kurt got an idea to do Broadway cast recordings and has been as an idea something he's loved his whole life um more more experience with it than I have had and um and that was our first that was Shigaboom um it's now Ghostlight and Shigaboom um but that was Shigaboom's first cast recording well it was the first one that was issued on the Ghostlight brand I guess wasn't it yeah we switched yeah, yeah. yeah. for, for we, the cast albums became yeah. the Ghostlight brand yeah. it was a thing I always was like Shigaboom should be individual artists and Ghostlight should be for cast albums so I think he's finally listened and they're switching that around <laughs> I'm very curious. A little while ago, you said when you first left Kansas, you thought your parents were your parents thought you might be going off to be a prostitute or something like that. No, at least a stripper. How do you call home and say, "I got cast in Debbie Does Dallas"? Well, it's great <laughs> when you still have family members that have no idea what that is. <laughs> or at least maybe they're all really good actors, um, but. Um, no, they had they had no idea, and um, you know they were just happy I was working and that I was happy. They had, they are not they still are not theater goers. They're just it's they're you know we're from farmers you know. Um, but when I called to say. They were just worried that I was working off Broadway again. <laughs> like that. that wasn't the right direction. No, that wasn't. They wanted me back on television. Well, let me ask it differently. What was your reaction when you got a call saying, "Would you come in and read for the stage version of Debbie Does Dallas"? That sounds excellent. <laughs> it sounds fantastic. Um, it was a great idea—a mus- a porn musical. Um, mm. I loved it, and especially when I. I mean, in my first, you know, it was like a feminist porn musical, which is really interesting to me because it's three things that don't go together. And again, that was very important to me. And I knew I was the right person to play the part (laughs) because I knew that I would, um, I could bring all those aspects, porn, feminism, and (laughs) music. (laughs) Um, uh, And I also was excited to work with girls, God, if any of my castmates are out there from Debbie Does Dallas, I I just I love you so much, and I know we've lost touch. And I think of writing them all the time. And I've had a baby, and I left the show actually to try to get pregnant. And and um, uh, I just I love you, Mary Catherine, Caitlin, Jama, Trisha, um, all of you. I I I think of emailing you all the time. I'm sorry I don't. That's the worst thing about being in theater. You genuinely love people, genuinely love them, and you run into them on the street five years later, and you can't fuck remember their names. It was the F word. You can't like you're like I love this person, and I've just since I've seen them, I've done five shows with cast, you know, with a cast of twenty five, you know, or you know, crew and everything. And oh god, I can't. I hate. But those girls, I will always remember. And 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 uh, and that show was um. I, I, that was a real downtown experience, a real genuine downtown experience. I felt really cool doing that show. I'm not really cool, but that show made me feel cool. So did, did your mother eventually see you in the show? She did not. No. <laughs> there was no nudity in the show except for by men. Uh-huh. So that's another reason I loved it. And that was another um, Shikaboom Ghost Light recording. And um, and uh, a lot of colleges obviously love that show. And, um, and uh, no, my mom... Uh, she wasn't interested in seeing that. Not, you know, she wouldn't call me and say, I'm not coming to see that one. It was just never was asked for tickets for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mm-hmm. talked about how you came from Kansas to New York. You got off the plane. Christine Colgate got off the plane from Cincinnati in the south mm-hmm. of France. Tell us how you became Christine Colgate in Dirty Rotten Scandals. And it was your third mm-hmm. show that you were in that Norbert Leo Butts was also in. That's right. Between third? Rent. Oh, that's right. Between Rent, mm-hmm. last five years, and then right, Dirty Rotten Scandals. Right, that was our third. And um and many like uh you know, benefits and shikaboom concerts and stuff in between. Um I was Jack O'Brien. Um, the director. Yeah, I was pregnant 
Um, and I was actually offered, we were offered a house to buy that we'd been house sitting. And um, it was Ed Sharon and Jane Alexander's house My I idolized. And it was the first time I'd been out of work, maybe ever, <laughs> you know. And um, we had no money. I had no money. And uh, we were offered this house. I mean, I had money, of course, but not that kind of money. And um, and I said, how are we going to do this? I'm pregnant. You know, I, I don't want to... Um, uh, there's not a lot of opportunity right now. And um, within a week, Jack O'Brien called and offered me a reading of Dirty Rock. I was six months pregnant, and I went in and did it. And uh, I wanted to do good because I have also was a fan of David Yazbek before that. Um, Kurt had his solo albums, um, and we'd had them for the uh, label. Um, and uh, so I, I knew David Yazbek. And also Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is one of my favorite movies of all time. I was interested in many ways, and of course, Jack O'Brien. They called me and did the workshop, and then they asked, they did another workshop with Recast, and they took me on again. I was by this time eight months pregnant <laughs> and um, almost maybe 40 pounds heavier. And um, they kept, they said, coincidentally, when we're starting production, you'll have had the baby, you know, hopefully two months previous. And it all, it did, it all worked out. And I took my son to San Diego for four months and it was his first out of town tryout. He's already had two and he's going to be four next week. Well, it's tough enough, I would assume, to be a working mother doing anything, but being in a show must be very difficult. I looked around. Especially with a young infant. Young infant. He was... Couple months old, seven months old when yeah. the show opened, or six months old, and it was a, it's, it was a heavy. I'm on stage all after the first twenty minutes. I'm on stage the whole time, and at the end, I had to run through the audience. And um, I'm not, you know, saying poor me, but I'm saying working moms have it rough because my mom was a working mom, and um, and I know what um, what kind of emotional toll it takes um, on women that. Um, because no matter what you say, a lot of it falls to the woman. Um, uh, even, you know, with a modern husband like mine who helps. I mean, he doesn't help. He's he's equal partner in raising our child and equal partner in maintaining our home and, and, and everything. Um, but I looked around maybe when Eli was like four, five, six months old, and I was like, where are the other mothers for me to like talk about <laughs> what this is like? And I realized there weren't any. <laughs> there were not very few. Um, there were still breastfeeding, you know, and trying to do eight shows a week. It's um, it's not eight shows a week are hard when you're like a healthy single person. <laughs> um, and and now that I'm a married mom, I it's more difficult. On the other hand, I'm enjoying myself more than when I was in my twenties. I'm happier than when I was in my twenties. I'm I'm more appreciative. I'm I I'm more appreciative of what I do. I think musical theater in this day and age is maybe one of the most beautiful things you can do in the world in terms of entertainment or art. It's sending out only good into the world. And it's something that I went from kind of looking down on to being so honored to be a part of. In the minute or so that we have left, I want to talk to you about one Did more thing. I talk thing. that much? You can edit some of my stuff <laughs> it, out. It's Please amazing. edit. It's amazing how quickly an hour goes uh, past. It's amazing how fun. old I got. I could talk about myself. There's so many years. <laughs> I want to talk about one other production that you do. It's your one-woman show called You May Now Worship Me, mm -hmm. which you have evolved over a period of time. You just did a performance here in New York. Tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about it. And it's a, it's a mix, kind of eclectic mix of songs that you perform. Yes, it's really, um, it's more, it's, I guess they've said it's a mix of Bette Midler and Spalding Gray, and I hope that's not about my appearance, but more so about the piece itself. I wrote it with uh, my writing partner, Dick Scanlon, and um, we have been writing it over a course of years, and um, Michael Mayer became attached uh, in, in January of this year. We started work while I was doing Little Mermaid. Thank you, um, Disney, for allowing me to do two shows at once. And um, thank you, my son and husband. Um, uh, and uh, it's, um, it's a performance piece. And Michael, uh, Michael Mayer directed us in this last uh, time, in this last go-round, so we could... Um, uh, see what we had and now it looks like um, it's something that people want to produce on Broadway um, 
and it's looking very good for the fall um this fall um and if not this fall then uh then um next uh next spring john took one minute i'm going to take one minute in this whole conversation you've talked about coming to love musicals you've talked about that you're not a singer you had to learn to be a singer you were an actress in looking over your resume one play landscape of the body a couple of seasons ago here in new york at signature theater company was that just what you dreamed of to finally be in a play well, I had been in plays, um, just never, um, unfortunately, anyone's that anyone would know about. Um, and done, you know, television and movies, which are nothing like doing plays. But um, are you asking if it was a dream come true in the penultimate every... Yes, it was. It was what I'm talking about of... Uh, it's a John Guare play, and it's a play with music. And um, it was in a small theater, and I was acting alongside Lily Taylor... And um, it was very well received because um, people were very moved by the production. Um, and even though it was kind of a revival in a way, and I don't, you know, I'm kind of obviously tried not to do revivals. Um, it was so rethought, you know, and realized in a way that had never been before that um, it felt completely fresh and new. And um, so I would have to say that that um, experience uh is was definitely and is is a is um a, a highlight they're all highlights you know every show is is a part of one's life and years of one's life that show started in williamstown and um came back years later you know i did it in williamstown and no one would ever know that i'd done a play in williamstown but now because it got, received such acclaim and and um uh it and people know about it but um it was years of of uh, several years of people's lives of getting that going here so um it it was a highlight well coming back to the present uh, the lundfontaine theater here in new york broadway theater the little mermaid eight times a week sherry renee scott as ursula sherry thanks so much for being with us today on downstage center it's my pleasure thanks sherry I'm Howard Sherman for the American Theatre Wing, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.